Greetings. Welcome back to the Inflammatory Content Podcast with me, your host, Kellen Cavanero. In today's episode, we will be discussing a paper published this month, December 2019, in Nature Immunology, titled Commensal Viruses Maintain Intestinal Intraepithelial Lymphocytes Via Non-Canonical Rig Eye Signaling. That was a mouthful. This was published by Lei Lu and Tao Gong and colleagues out of the University of Science and Technology of China. The microbiome is a super hot topic right now, and its relationship with diseases is being explored by many labs around the world. However, in addition to bacteria, there also exist a lot of viruses in the gut. This is not being explored nearly as much as the bacteria. Nevertheless, there have been a few studies which have shown that healthy humans and animals have commensal viruses in their gut and that dysbiosis of the virome in the gut is associated with inflammatory diseases, mostly inflammatory bowel disease. However, there is a paucity of causal data, so that is what this paper aims to investigate. The overarching question is, how do commensal viruses contribute to intestinal homeostasis? To briefly summarize this paper, the authors show that these viruses that exist in the gut that are non-pathogenic are required for the homeostasis of the intraepithelial lymphocyte populations. The viral RNA-sensing receptor RIG-I that exists in antigen-presenting cells recognizes these viruses, which in turn leads to IL-15 production, which then maintains the lymphocyte population. Awesome stuff. I can't wait to get into the details. Before we go through the entire paper, let's discuss a few terms so that we have some background information going into this paper. The epithelium is a layer of epithelial cells that lines the small and large intestines and spans a large amount of area between 200 and 400 square meters. That's a lot of space. This epithelial layer is the barrier between the outside and the inside of our body and thus is a potential entry point for bacteria, viruses, fungi, all sorts of pathogens. It is also the site where we absorb nutrients from our diet. So the body has to work diligently in order to let in the right things and keep out the wrong things. The epithelium is like a gatekeeper of a castle that lets supplies come in but keeps invaders out in order to promote the longevity of the kingdom. And like a castle, our body has entities in place in order to kill invaders and keep them at bay. This is the immune system. There are a large number of immune cells that exist in the intestines, the majority of which are the IELs, and they are the first line of defense against pathogens in the gut. There are two kinds of IELs. There are the TCR gamma delta positive and the TCR alpha beta positive lineages. Of these two major types, there are many subtypes, and thus IELs are extremely heterogeneous. Different subsets of these cells exist in different localizations in the intestines. 
Some of the TCR alpha beta IELs express CD8 alpha alpha, which is not seen much outside of the gut. There are a few types of TCR alpha beta IELs that express CD alpha alpha. They can be CD4 positive, they can be CD8 alpha beta positive, or they can only express CD8 alpha alpha. Unlike other CD4 and CD8 molecules, the CD8 alpha alpha is not a co-receptor for activation. It actually does the opposite. It represses T-cell activation, which it does by being a decoy receptor of sorts that is located distally from the immunological synapse. In the literature, one will often come across the terms natural IELs and induced IELs. Natural IELs do not express CD8 alpha beta or CD4. Conversely, induced IELs express CD4 or CD8 alpha beta. If we look at the IELs as a whole, the majority of them are CD8 positive T cells. So there exists a large cytotoxic population of lymphocytes in the gut armed to destroy invading pathogens. It has been shown that the friendly or commensal bacteria that are not pathogenic support the IEL population. This knowledge led the authors of this report to question whether commensal viruses too promote the maintenance of the IELs. Okay, now let's dig into the paper. The first question the authors ask is, what viruses exist in the intestines? They addressed this by taking stool samples, isolating the DNA and RNA. They then amplified the viral DNA and RNA and then used next generation sequencing to quantify the relative abundance of the viral-like particles in the stool samples. The virome that exists in the intestines contains both bacteriophage, which are viruses that infect bacteria, as well as eukaryotic viruses, which will infect the host. This was all done in healthy, specific pathogen-free, or SPF, mice. Several commensal bacteriophage families were found, and a few eukaryotic virus families were found as well. These included both DNA and RNA viruses. Okay, so there's a bunch of viruses that exist in the gut in healthy animals. What are these things doing? In order to address this question, they did what most biologists do in situations where one wants to know what something is doing. They got rid of it. They did this with an antiviral cocktail and assessed the effect of the antiviral cocktail on the lymphocyte populations in several tissue compartments, the IELs, the LPLs, which are the lamina propria lymphocytes, the PPs, which are the Peyer's patches, and lastly, the mesenteric lymph nodes, or MLNs. The total IEL population was reduced in the small intestine and the colon in the antiviral cocktail, or AVC, treated mice. In terms of the IEL subtypes, all of the subtypes that express CD8 were significantly decreased with the AVC treatment. The TCR gamma delta positive T cells that express neither CD8 nor CD4 were also significantly decreased. 
Additionally, a more rare induced IEL population, one that expresses both CD4 and CD8, that is TCR alpha beta positive, was also decreased in the small intestine. When subtypes only express CD4 and not CD8, they are not affected by the antiviral cocktail. So what about the other organs outside of the intestines? The treatment had no effect on T-cells that were located far away from the intestines, like in tissues such as the spleen, liver, and lymph nodes. However, in more proximally localized tissues like the Peyer's patches and the lamina propria, the CD8 population was decreased with the AVC treatment, whereas the CD4 compartment stayed the same. Okay, so now we have a phenotype. We have reduction in these CD8 positive cells and these intraepithelial lymphocytes in the intestine. This is super cool. This is the first time anyone has ever shown that commensal viruses support the homeostasis of this population. Now, how is it happening? What's the mechanism? There are several ways that viruses are detected by the host. This is usually through pattern recognition receptors that essentially ring the alarm and tell the body that there's something going on when a virus or bacteria or other seemingly foreign entity is present. The authors investigate three potential pathways and receptors. The first being the TLRs, or the toll-like receptors, which activate antiviral immune responses through the protein TRIF. The second family of receptors they investigate are the RIG-I-like receptors, which induce antiviral responses through the mitochondrial antiviral signaling protein, or MAVs. And the last pathway they investigate is the cyclic GMP-AMP synthase pathway, which goes on to activate the stimulator of interferon genes, aka sting. They investigate these pathways through the use of knockout mice, which lack a specific gene that will then inform them of whether that gene and its protein are necessary for the ability of the commensal viruses to maintain the IELs. Of these three receptors and three downstream mediators, the pair that had an effect on the number of IELs were the MAVs deficient and RIG-I deficient mice. The authors wanted to confirm that the reduction in IELs that they saw with this knockout animal was the same reduction that they saw with the antiviral cocktail and thus was responsible for that reduction so they fed the knockout mice the cocktail and no change. So this is the mechanism. The viruses are supporting the IELs through the RIG-I pathway. And they did a few other experiments that confirmed that the RIG-I knockout mouse has the same phenotype as the antiviral cocktail treated mice. The authors then ask, is the effect of RIG-I intrinsic to the IELs or extrinsic to the IELs? Essentially, where does the RIG-I signaling matter for this phenotype? And one way that researchers in immunology often address this is through bone marrow transplant experiments. 
their first bone marrow transfer experiment is with rig eye sufficient and rig eye deficient bone marrow donors transplanted into rag two knockout mice which lack b and t cells this sort of only somewhat immunocompromised recipient in the rag two knockout is a bit unusual typically in the literature people will use fully immunocompromised mice they find that when this bone marrow, which contains more than just B and T cells, is allowed to reconstitute the host, that there is no change in the IEL population. And they say that this means that the effect of Rig I is not intrinsic to the IELs. I have a bit of a bone to pick with this, pun intended. What this type of experiment really tells you is whether the protein that is expressed by the hematopoietic cells in the bone marrow is required or if the protein that is expressed by the non-hematopoietic cells is required for the phenotype. It does not, however, tell you what specific cell the mechanism is intrinsic to. Okay, I'll get off my soapbox now. They do go on to do one more experiment where they lethally irradiate the recipient mice, which will get rid of all of the immune cells in the mouse rather than just the B and T cells. This is the more common way researchers will do bone marrow transfer experiments. They again transfer the bone marrow from rig eye sufficient and rig eye deficient mice into rig eye sufficient or rig eye deficient mice. And in this experiment, regardless of whether the recipient is rig eye sufficient or rig eye deficient, the rig eye deficient bone marrow transplanted animals have less IELs. Thus, the hematopoietic rig eye expression is important, but we don't know if it is from the IELs or not. Importantly, they did go on to check individual cell types to see how important their rig eye expression is by using a Cre-Lox system. So if cells have a unique marker that they express, we can use a Cre-Lox system and make cell-specific knockout mice. And they did this with CD11C and VIL1. CD11C is a marker for macrophages and dendritic cells whereas VIL-1 is a marker for IELs. And the results confirm what the authors proposed based on the bone marrow transfer experiments. The IEL intrinsic rig eye expression is not necessary because mice that lack rig eye expression in the IELs have normal IEL levels, whereas we knock out rig eye in the dendritic cells and macrophages, IELs are decreased. So, rig eye expression in these antigen-presenting cells is required. The next question the authors asked was, how does the antigen-presenting cell rig eye signaling support the IELs? So, logically, they started from the beginning by looking at the IEL development in the thymus. And they found that when the rig eye MAVS pathway is deleted, that the IELs develop in the thymus normally. Okay, so they develop normally, but once they're developed, is rig eye necessary for their survival? They did show that the same cells that had reduced numbers in the gut also had reduced proliferation and increased apoptosis. So they're dying more and proliferating less, leading to their lower numbers. 
The authors then dig a little bit deeper and ask, how does the rig eye signaling lead to the changes in proliferation and apoptosis? This is what I love about science. We can just keep asking why something happens and get deeper and deeper and figure out more and more. It's so cool. I love this stuff. But I digress. In order to elucidate this mechanism, they looked at the levels of the macrophages and dendritic cells in the rig eye deficient mice and found that the numbers of them are the same. But what about the molecules that they're producing? One pro-inflammatory pathway that has been shown to be induced by rig eye signaling is the interferon antiviral pathway, which would make sense. They did a lot of investigation into this pathway and found that this phenotype is independent of interferon. They then investigated a cytokine, IL-15, that has been shown to promote the survival of lymphocytes. They looked at the IL-15 expression by the antigen-presenting cells in the rig I-deficient mice and bingo, much lower levels. Additionally, they delivered IL-15 through a viral vector and found that it restored the IELs to their normal levels. This is what we call a rescue experiment. We have a phenotype, we perturb it, and then we quote-unquote rescue it through the addition of the missing mediator and restore the phenotype to its original state, showing that that mediator is sufficient to restore the phenotype. Another mechanism down, but the authors were not satisfied. They dug deeper. They asked, how is the IL-15 expression regulated? So we know that the viruses will trigger the rig eye receptor and then the MAVs downstream signaling pathway and ultimately lead to the IL-15 production by the antigen-presenting cells. But what happens in between the MAV signaling and the IL-15 production? There are several bifurcations of this pathway. The two pathways they investigated were the NF-kappa-B pathway and the IRF-1 pathway. They found that the latter is required for the phenotype. This paper really took advantage of genetically engineered mice. They have a knockout for everything, which really enabled them to elucidate the full mechanism of the phenotype induced by the antiviral treatment. This is no small feat. Okay, now for the big question that everyone's been waiting to be answered. What does this loss in IELs mean for the health status of the host? So they induced colitis, which is a form of irritable bowel disease, by providing dextran sulfate sodium, or DSS, which is a very common model of colitis. When mice are treated with DSS, they exhibit hallmarks of colitis, such as weight loss, shortening of the length of the colon, and pathological differences, which appear to be destruction of the villi. As expected, when the mice were virus depleted on top of the DSS treatment, the severity of the colitis was exacerbated. IL-15 reversed this phenotype. And that's pretty much the paper. So to summarize what the authors found, they first showed that these commensal viruses are required for the maintenance of the IEL population. This was perhaps the most interesting and novel finding of the study. They then showed the mechanism of how this works. The virus particles are recognized by rig I receptors, which then signal through the MAVs IRF1 pathway in antigen-presenting cells, leading to their production of IL-15, 
which then goes on to promote the homeostasis of the intraepithelial lymphocytes. This pathway and these viruses are important for reducing severity of colitis in an animal model. The authors follow up their study with a discussion of several unanswered questions and limitations to their study. First, they state, quote, the role of bacteriophages in the maintenance of IELs cannot be excluded, end quote. As we mentioned previously, there's currently no way to deplete bacteriophages independently. We can deplete bacteria and get rid of bacteriophages, but that does not isolate the effect of bacteriophages because we also depleted the bacteria. Another important point the authors address is the fact that there are few RNA viruses in the gut and rig eye senses RNA viruses. So how do these few viruses support IELs? They speculate that there actually could be more viruses, but they aren't being picked up by the sequencing methods being used. That's certainly a possibility. Another possibility is that the DNA viruses that exist in higher abundance could be creating RNA, and that RNA could then go on to activate RIGI. They also note that there is, as of yet, no understanding of how the IELs protect the gut from tissue damage. I'm guessing it's through an increase in production of anti-inflammatory cytokines and a decreased production of pro-inflammatory cytokines, but that was not something these authors investigated. It's also possible that the antiviral cocktail itself could be doing something to promote the colitis phenotype. I thought this was a really cool study. It makes me wonder if you would see a similar phenotype at other mucosal barriers, such as the lung, when the commensal viruses are depleted. What other diseases could this increase the susceptibility to? We know that germ-free mice that lack microbes are rather unhealthy and susceptible to many different diseases. Would these virus-depleted mice have a lot of the same disease susceptibilities? Since the microbiome field took off, there has been a lot of interest in using probiotics in order to promote health outcomes. While there is a good theoretical basis behind this and a lot of promise, it hasn't quite delivered yet. I wonder if, like the probiotics, there could be some promise to using exogenous commensal viruses in order to promote health outcomes. So sort of the reverse of this study, could we add in more commensal virus to animals in order to ameliorate disease? One important thing to ultimately figure out is which specific viruses are doing the work. It's possible that since this rig eye is an innate sensor that there is no specific virus, that it's just a family of RNA viruses, or maybe it's all of the DNA and RNA viruses, but it would be nice to be able to deplete specific families of viruses Maybe we could deplete the RNA viruses or deplete the DNA viruses and see which has the effect. Finally, I wonder what happens in humans. Can we see if people who have taken antiviral medication and also have irritable bowel disease experience worsened disease severity upon the antiviral treatment? Could we biopsy the intestines to see if the intraepithelial lymphocyte populations are decreased upon antiviral treatment? This would be a very interesting follow-up study. And with that, we have another paper down. Before we close today, I would like to introduce a new segment to the podcast. When I was in spin class this morning, I had a thought. 
Wouldn't it be a great idea to have a single lesson that I've learned throughout my time as a researcher at the end of every episode? So that's exactly what we're going to do now. Considering the origin of this idea, my first lesson is getting regular exercise. I am a bit of a fitness junkie, and I could talk about the benefits of exercise for hours, but I will spare you instead just say that getting regular exercise has been hugely important for me to think critically, generate ideas, and stay focused for long periods of time. Many people think of exercise in terms of the physical benefits, but there are many cognitive benefits beyond the physical benefits. In terms of longevity research, exercise comes up again and again as a major driver of longevity. Okay, well, that's it for today. I hope you all learned something. As always, please write a review on iTunes. Tell us what you think. If you like this, please share it with your friends. And if you have any comments or questions, please email us at the email address listed in the show notes. Also listed in the show notes are the paper that was discussed, as well as a review surrounding this topic. We'll see you next time.